Education has always been important to untextbook producer Jonathan DeBell. He and his family have sacrificed a lot to get him to where he is now, like sending him away from his home in Haiti to live with family in Mississippi so that he can get an American education. But it didn't take long for him to notice how normal it was for American kids to separate themselves along racial lines. One day I came into school, I came in the cafeteria and then I could see how like segregated school was. Like the um, African-American kids would like sit here and all the like white kids would sit over there. And I think it's very hard for someone who like grew up in the US like see it that way because that's what they're used to, that's what they grew up in. Jonathan's high school was racially integrated, but each year he noticed more and more of his black classmates ended up leaving school altogether. So when I was in high school, freshman year, most of my friends that were um, African-American were um, with me. And by senior year, only um, a few of us graduated. And no one really cared that much because it's been happening for like so long. And it doesn't only happen at my school. It happens all over the U.S. So I started to like ask myself, why is this going on? Why is no one talking about it? That's when I found out about those like laws. The U.S. government created policies, specifically housing, to um, segregate the United States. Racially discriminatory housing laws were officially banned in the 1960s, but it's not exactly a switch that you can just turn off. Black people haven't had the same access to generational wealth and education as their white counterparts. And even after schools became desegregated, the discrepancies remained. Like, there are many factors that play a role in that, like, how much funding their school have depends on, like, where that you live. And you can see how past policies created ghettos. So, like, that's the reason why we see, like, things like poverty, unemployment, economic inequality in the U.S., Past housing policies actually falls into like so many things. I think that's the pillar to like so many other issues because it's like every action has a reaction. So if I do something today, something is going to happen tomorrow. On this episode of Untextbooked, Jonathan interviews Richard Rothstein, author of The Color of Law, a forgotten history of how our government segregated America. I'm Gabe Hostin, and you're listening to Untextbooked. Untextbooked. Thank you so much for um, taking the time for um, doing this interview. We really appreciate it. Thank you for your interest. I'm grateful to you. So um, the first question that I want to ask is, what's some redlining to people who might not really understand what redlining is? A redlining was a uh, policy, both of the federal government and by banks, to deny uh, conventional loans, mortgages, or FHA, Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration mortgages, to families who lived in predominantly black neighborhoods. The term arose because a, an agency in the 1930s, uh, the Federal, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, drew maps of areas that it determined were too high risk for um, the federal government to guarantee mortgages in. And uh, one of the characteristics they considered when deciding if it was too high risk was whether it had a uh, African-Americans living in it. And it drew maps and colored those areas red. So the term redlining uh, comes from that. And it was, I say, a policy, both of the private sector, banks, insurance companies as well, to uh, deny credit insurance to people who lived in those neighborhoods. 
So kind of a, a follow-up to that question. How did racial zoning and high poverty neighborhood affect the way kids living in that poverty, specifically um, Black children, in terms of like how well they will do in the future? And do you think those um, outcomes were like intentional? Like, did people meant to create those rules so that the um, results could be intentional? Well, there are lots of questions there in that one question. Let me uh, separate a few of them. The reason that children living in segregated, low-income neighborhoods achieve at lower levels than uh, children living in higher opportunity places is because there are so many social and economic challenges that those children face that impede their ability to learn. So, for example, African-American children in low-income segregated neighborhoods, as you may know, have asthma at a much higher rate than middle-class children. They have asthma at a higher rate than middle-class children because they live in neighborhoods that are more polluted, closer to industrial facilities, more trucks driving by their homes, more dilapidated buildings, more vermin in the environment, more empty lots kicking up dust. And if a child has asthma, that child is more likely than a child who doesn't have asthma to be up at night wheezing and then coming to school drowsy the next day. And if uh, you have two groups of children who are otherwise identical, two identical groups, same racial composition of each group, same social and economic background, same family structure, but one group has a higher rate of asthma than the other, that group is going to, on average, it's not true in every case, but on average, be a sleepier group in school and be able to achieve less as a result. Now, asthma causes a, is a very tiny cause of the low achievement of African-American children. But then you begin to think of all the other conditions that challenge their ability to learn. Asthma, as I mentioned, lead poisoning. Lead poisoning has a measurable impact in decreasing IQ. And African-American children have lead poisoning at a higher rate than white children because they live in those polluted neighborhoods. They uh, live in frequently in buildings that are older where lead paint was used, which is now prohibited in newer buildings. But if the paint starts to flake, the buildings are not well maintained. The children are exposed to lead. African-American neighborhoods are more likely to have pipes, lead pipes, bringing water to their homes. So African-American children have a higher rate of lead poisoning than white children do. Homelessness, economic insecurity, uh, lack of access to health care, dental care, for example, uh, African-American children are more likely to have untreated dental cavities that causes uh, pain. They're more likely to be uncomfortable and distracted when they come to school. None of these are a big factor in depressing their achievement. But when you can be begin to add them all up, you pretty much explain the lower achievement of African-American children in school, which then uh, leads to life outcomes that are not as um, rewarding as uh, the outcomes of children who come to school, healthy, well-rested, well-nourished, and in economically secure homes. Now, it's one thing if a child has asthma or lead poisoning or homelessness or economic insecurity or lack of access to medical or health care. It's another thing when you have a school where every child has one or more of these challenges. That school is unable to address the needs of every child to make accommodations for every child. 
And so the achievement of all children is depressed by the concentration of disadvantage in a school. If, if, if children weren't with one or more of those disadvantages, were in a school where not every child had those disadvantages, that is in an integrated school, the school could pay special attention to that child, give that child the special attention that he or she needs. But in a school where every child has those disadvantages, a segregated school, that kind of special attention is impossible. And the achievement gap between black and white children is exacerbated. What's the um, difference between de facto and de jure segregation? Well, de facto segregation is really a myth. It doesn't exist. De facto segregation is the idea that the reason we have segregated neighborhoods in every metropolitan area of this country is because of uh, private discrimination, because uh, white landlords or homeowners wouldn't sell to uh, African-Americans and white neighborhoods or private banks or real estate agencies or developers discriminated or people just like to live with each other of the same race or economic differences that prevent African-Americans from uh, having the means to uh, buy homes in white neighborhoods. Uh, that's what they call de facto segregation. And it doesn't exist as the cause of segregation in this country. The reason we have really an apartheid system of uh, residential neighborhoods is because of government action that required those private actors to segregate uh, residential neighborhoods. So when the government creates segregation, that's called de jure segregation. I prefer to call it state-sponsored segregation, state-enforced segregation, so that people understand what we're talking about. So now, it may be that the private actors, in fact, it is the case that the private actors were happy with that. They liked segregating. They liked being able to discriminate. But if the federal government had exercised its constitutional responsibilities by requiring uh, those institutions when they got federal aid to uh, administer their, their housing programs on a non-discriminatory basis, they would have had to have done so, and every community in this country would be a non-segregated place. In the uh, post-World War II period, federal government created suburbs throughout this country and required them to be segregated. It financed developers of suburbs to um, discriminate against African-Americans. Now, as I say, the, the developers may have wanted to anyway, but if the federal government had told them that we'll guarantee your bank loans only if you uh, sell your homes on a non-discriminatory basis, they would have had to do so regardless of their private views. So that's why I say de facto segregation is a myth, doesn't exist. There is no uh, segregated community in this country that was segregated by private actors alone without the government embracing, endorsing, and requiring their private segregation. Most people in my generation, they have this argument that slavery was uh, 200 years ago, and there are no excuses for um, African-American to not do well in this country. So um, I was wondering if you could explain. Well, slavery ended 100 years ago, or more than 100 years ago, over 150 years ago. And the... Uh, at the end of the Civil War, there were three constitutional amendments adopted that were uh, designed to ensure that the formerly enslaved could exercise the full rights of American citizenship. Uh, the 13th Amendment um, prohibited second-class citizenship of any kind. The 14th Amendment 
prohibited discrimination against African-Americans of any kind because they were enslaved. And the 15th Amendment prohibited restrictions on voting rights of African-Americans. At the end of Reconstruction, which only lasted um, a little more than 10 years, the Supreme Court and Congress effectively annihilated those three amendments. So slavery was never really uh, completely ended. Second-class citizenship was never completely ended. African-Americans have never uh, enjoyed the rights, the full rights of American citizenship. And the policies that the federal government followed to ensure that African-Americans would not enjoy those rights were so powerful that they continue to this day. For example, as you know, that when I, I mentioned before how the federal government subsidized the suburbanization of this country for whites only, as it gave guaranteed loans to uh, developers uh, to create all white suburbs. The result was that white families who bought those suburbs in the immediate end of World War II gained wealth as they bought homes that were inexpensive at the time and then uh, grew in value uh, over the um, next couple of generations so that homes that white families bought uh, with federal guarantees for in today's money, $100,000 in like 1950, all over the country, and now sell for $300,000, dollars $500,000. African-Americans were prohibited by government policy in violation of the Constitution from participating in this program. The result is that white families gained wealth when their homes appreciated. They use that wealth to send their children to college. They used it to perhaps take care of temporary emergencies. They used it to um, subsidize their retirements, and they used it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren, who then had down payments for their own homes. African-Americans were prohibited from gaining that wealth. The result is that today, on average, African-American incomes are 60% of white incomes. And that enormous disparity between the 60% income ratio and the 5% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that was practiced in the mid-20th century and has never been remedied. So that's an enormous difference that impedes the ability of African-Americans to emerge from the shadow of slavery, even though it was over 150 years ago. Uh, the legacies of slavery have never been addressed, never been remedied. Uh, they continue to this day, and that's why we need much more aggressive policies to um, address the, the segregation of African-Americans, the fact that we have a, a system of apartheid when it comes to um, metropolitan areas, and uh, that has never been addressed. So um, one of the last question that I have is, aside from politics, what can we do to um, help undo what has been done? Well, we had a, a civil rights movement in the 1960s that uh, engaged in marches, demonstrations, civil disobedience to challenge other forms of segregation, like segregation of restaurants or, or, or transportation. But we need a new civil rights movement today that's like the one in the 1960s that is going to directly challenge the segregation and inequality that African-Americans um, experience. I hope we'll see one emerge. 
we have uh, a much more accurate and passionate understanding about uh, how segregation happened, about how racial inequality happened, the things that I've been describing to you before, a more passionate and accurate understanding uh, that we ever have had before in American history. We had 20 million Americans participate in Black Lives Matter demonstrations uh, a year ago. Um, most of those participants were white. That kind of um, awareness of racial inequality is unprecedented in American history. And uh, the issue is whether that uh, those demonstrations, which reflected an awareness of racial inequality, whether they will lead to organization that will challenge segregation. So far, it has not. But uh, I'm hopeful that it will. Richard Rothstein is the author of The Color of Law. And Mr. Rothstein, where can we find more of your work? Well, I can um, send you a link to the website of the Economic Policy Institute. I'll send a link to that. And I'll also send a link to an organization that's trying to create that civil rights movement that I described. And uh, you asked what an individual can do. It will be a link for where they can uh, sign up. So uh, thank you very much, Jonathan. Good luck to you. And thanks uh, for your attention and, and interest in, in my work. Thank you. Richard Rothstein is a distinguished fellow of the Economic Policy Institute and a senior fellow emeritus at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Jonathan DeBell is a sophomore at the University of Mississippi. Our website is untextbook.org, and we're on social media at Untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Entman. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer. Untextbook is a project of Got History, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet.